1: You're on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, Kira Gaunt, an author, activist, professor, musicologist and singer who is fighting misogyny online and looking at the way women, women of color and girls are impacted by the
0: expectations of invisible audiences on social media. We all need a space online and offline that we can be ourselves freely and not be impinged upon. Dr. Gaunt is going to help us figure out
1: how to fight online harassment of women and how this behavior reflects the greater problem of humans becoming trolls. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. This is Team Human. So just this week, I was asked to do a, uh, one of those talks. It was for the, uh, magazine industry. And I was always a magazine kid. I love magazines. And, uh, I spent the day at this conference and these uh, they were listening to these uh, panels and talks about SEO optimization and big data mining of their audiences and how to better deliver their readers to their sponsors and all. So I felt it was incumbent upon me to explain to these people that what social media has done to individuals, the social media industry will do to their magazines. So the same talk, I'll I'll go and talk to a 14-year-old and tell them, Facebook is not your friend. You go to the boardroom at Facebook, they're not talking about how to help Johnny maintain better relationships. They're thinking, how are we going to optimize Johnny's social graph? Or how, how are we going to maximize our influence over Johnny's choices by creating a social media feed that is algorithmically concocted to make Johnny into more Johnny than he is? So what I was trying to tell these magazines was that when they when they incorporate a, a social media strategy into their business, that this is really just their acquisition by other means. In other words, the the AOL buying Time Warner thing is still happening, magazine by magazine by magazine. So when you look at say uh, in the restaurant business, you know a restaurant in New York City. They all want to be on on Seamless, which is a way for, you know, businesses to order lunch from the restaurant. You go into this app and you pick your menu and you pick your thing. And then the app basically calls the restaurant or sends an email to the restaurant saying, send this food to those people. And Seamless, slowly over time, has increased their share of that ticket until now they get about 30 or 35 percent of that order because Seamless has established a monopoly. So what happens when a magazine now is using or depending on Facebook and Twitter for links for people to come in sideways to their content? So rather than going to the front page of, you know, magazine X now, you just see that link and you click on it. You go in sideways. And these magazines increasingly think now, oh, well, the the convenience and look at all the more hits and all the more traffic we're getting. They accept this as the new way things are and what i'm arguing to them is no these are decontextualized links to pieces of your content without the voice without the world without the landscape in which this this material came and you think you're getting the hit but you're actually not facebook's getting the hit and in the name of convenience you know what you've done is you've created these kind of beachheads for the social media invasion of your of your property And social media, they're not thinking, how are we going to create better readers? How are we going to create better discovery? No, they're really just thinking, how are we going to get our share price higher? How are we going to financialize this business? So they look at magazines the way Amazon looked at books or the way Uber looked at cabs. This is a market that we're going to monopolize and then leverage for something else. And if we destroy the entire thing in the the process, it doesn't matter. So what I was trying to argue to these guys, Was even if you don't care about the business model, even if you don't care about the long term success of your publication, you just want to be part of this big growth thing and burn out with everybody else, look at what it does to the experience of your magazine. What is it when your reader loses a sense of place and they're just in this tag cloud? You know, what does it mean when they're using Snapchat to find? your articles and sort of swipe left if you don't want to see it, swipe right. If you do, it turns all media into this kind of disposable media. You know, yes, you can swipe left and not read anything about the Iraq war. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. And then that algorithm is going to do what? It's going to stop showing you that stuff until it stops existing. At least when you buy the New York Times or any USA Today, there's that article about the Iraq war that you ignore. But at least it's there. There was something they keep yelling about some war. All right, I'll I'll go look at it. You know, so what I'm trying to argue to to these magazines, and of course to, to humans, is that they still have the home field advantage in the real world, in whatever their region is, even if it's an intellectual region or a social region. And digital technology here is not the problem. It's these business plans that they are accepting as preconditions of nature's oh this is facebook's realm if we want to be on the internet we've got to accept that plant. i'm arguing that those magazines that remain terrestrial just as those people who remain human will maintain a home field advantage and when this thing pops which it will just like the dot-com bubble you will be left you will have your integrity you will still be a property an entity a place a community Don't surrender that so fast because you're going to want it. You're going to want it on the other end. We are Team Human, coming to you live from the Basement Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY, Queens, and online at teamhuman.fm, where you can also support the program. I can't think of a better person with whom to be exploring the effects of this atomization of people into kind of private silos of algorithmically concocted sensationalism than Kira Gaunt, an author, professor, TED fellow, girls activist. So tell us, if you will, please, Kira, um, is the explosion of... Of misogyny online that you've been studying, is it largely a result of this sort of the same way that social media business plans are depending on our isolation
0: and our alienation? Is that sort of where this is coming from? I I think on some level it is. The people who run those social media platforms and companies, they may not have the experience that they need to deal with the kind of communities that I study. So, people of color, marginalized groups, particularly young girls online, a lot of us don't no longer have to cross over the lines, the the residential community lines that would have us see the everyday lives of the marginalized groups, the vulnerable g- groups in our society. So, these companies have a vision of profit that doesn't consider the impact and the unintended consequences on. The way people can distance themselves, disconnect themselves from people of color, and only be left with kind of a cognitive mental map of reality that only understands blackness, gender, sexuality, all of those things that are kind of, um, they're difficult in face-to-face conversation. They're difficult in face-to-face relationships. They're just not an image on your screen. There's depth in history and culture that you can't grasp. And if you would like to be triggered by your emotions when you're online, like you like to watch someone do something that's kind of provocative, you can say whatever you want because there's no real social relation that you have to account for. You can bring your own history, your own past, and not have the shared experience with the person on the other end of this interface. You may not know anything about them. So you could see, for example, a little black girl, eight years old, on YouTube, who is dancing a dance that you're not accustomed to. Uh, I study twerking. Yes, awkward. Um, (laughs) I I study race and gender um, and the unintended consequences for marginalized groups, and I'm looking at um, the kind of online messing around play that young girls do in their bedrooms. And like all of us did in our bedrooms before all of this digital media came along, we were in our bedrooms during adolescence and figuring out who we were, playing with identities, playing with games, toys, dances, posters, all kinds of new technology. For me, it was a little boombox and a cassette recorder. Um, so in those spaces, um, you, get, you don't get to see that I might be a straight-A student You don't get to see, you might only see the surface of what you think is attached to this style of dance that's associated with, in some cases, stripper culture and and hip-hop culture. It's talked about in the lyrics, so these girls that I study are dancing to songs that say stripper culture, hip-hop. All of the voicing or the audio aspects of the dance are done by male rappers for the most part, and what you hear, you ascribe to the image that you see on the screen. And you don't know that these girls might be coming from a long history of dancing this way that comes from African-rooted culture. You don't know anything about them, so you can say something really... um, I would consider it unethical if it was face-to-face. You can say all kinds of things like, uh, this is not radio-friendly talk, but um, I want to put my private part in that. Um, why don't you take off more of your clothes in the next video? Well, the two contexts are different. Very. So this girl has one
1: context. Yes. And whether she should be taping herself and putting it on the online or any of that is is a, a whole other question, yeah. too. But she's thinking one thing. It may be to her as innocent as double Dutch. Yes. But... Hand to clapping the, games, double dutch, the kinds of things that young girls do. There's another guy, some 40-year-old white guy who's just scrolling through the Internet looking for images to masturbate to. Yeah. And, and oh, there's a 16-year-old
0: girl, and she's already developed, and now she's moving her body in this way. Yeah, baby. Yeah, so we don't have the real kind of interface. We don't have any way of knowing what context you're coming from. We do not share the same contexts, and most people don't care. Well, the net doesn't care, though. Yeah, it is is, the way the structures work. It's
1: algorithmically programmed to put things in front of you that make you click. It doesn't care. If it was tacos, it's going to do that. Like for Donald Trump, liked a taco online. I think he liked it. Um, So it it doesn't matter. It's like big data. It doesn't care what it's going to pair up. So it finds out, oh, if I pair up these 14, 15-year-old black girls with these middle-aged Gamergate
0: guys— it's everybody it's 13 year old kids males it's males across the spectrum you can tell some of them reveal their age so it could be a 27 year old who's it's from people who seem to be predators looking for virginal age girls to people who think this is just fun this is what we do this is our social media we say and do you know the Space Under, a YouTube video, is, one book calls it, the the bottom of the web because it's so vicious. So people feel like they can say anything, but it is the um, kind of affective labor girls provide for this Internet culture, for the web culture. If she doesn't read the comments, then what's the harm to the girl? The harm is that that is persistent, portable media. It will last forever. So the harm is that that content, when it goes up, when they push um, upload, uh, I can take a screenshot of it. Um, The younger girls in my data set show their face and their personal data. They may use their real name on their YouTube site. The older they get, they start to mask their personal information and their identity. So you could be giving away, you know, with all the face recognition software, you could be identifying yourself for the future to come for when you're going to college, for when you're starting a job. And for me, my biggest concern is that, I mean, given this moment that we're watching all of these things happen around the Black Lives Matter campaign, you will be stigmatized and shut out of a job and you won't even know it. You won't know why you're not getting a job. You won't know. I mean, this is just a small part of the kind of content that this that could trigger this. Well,
1: there's so I mean, there's so many vectors in here, though, to figure out. I mean, the first is the the idea that this kind of behavior, you know, was around way before the internet. Yep. You know, and you can look. I mean, if you want to use American popular culture, even even you know beyond uh, the culture of black girls, you could say um, a movie like Risky Business, mm-hmm. say, mm-hmm. was really popular because it took something that every teenage boy did alone—you dance around your room in your underwear, pretending you're a rock star. Sorry. I did it too, right? I wanted to do the Bowie thing, which is even worse, right? On some cultural, you know, (laughs) level in terms of gender stuff, you know? So we all did it. And then it took a movie and a movie star to take that sort of private act and make it public and okay. It wasn't all of us showing pictures of ourselves doing it, but we could all sort of acknowledge through that movie star that that was happening. Now,
0: this is something different when the kids are shooting themselves and putting it up. So, I mean, you know, back to your earlier question about online misogyny. So a guy dancing in his underwear is very different than a girl. Mm. It has very different implications. Uh, when you look at the YouTube platform, um, the founders first started to uh, launch the site by in asking on Craigslist girls to put up videos of themselves because they know that girls are clickbait. They know that sex sells. It's not just sex sells. I mean, it's funny that we always say that, but it's actually we know that female bodies sell. We know that female, the allure of looking at female bodies and the masculine gaze is a part of media and it's been a part of television. It surely was a part of early radio, Is part of early race records as far as African Americans. Anything that will grab your attention from someone you don't actually have a firsthand connection with is going to keep your attention. And we know this. So the way I talk about it is we're first and foremost our biology. We are human beings, and our biology drives everything we do. If you're tired, if you're angry, if you're hungry, it shapes what you pay attention to, and it makes you more susceptible to things that your biology is attracted to. So clicking, being bored, being, att- you know, this attention economy. Feeds on the fact that most of us are not well fed, that we're not well, we're not getting enough sleep, and so all of these factors play into certain marginalized groups being exploited online. Even though marginalized groups are over-indexed, we African American kids have more presence on most social media platforms than even adults as a demographic group. They spend more time consuming social media than any other demographic groups, Um, African-Americans and Latino kids. And this is a problem because they don't make as much media. So they're the real consumers, the products, so to speak, of social media platforms. And so what happens, you know, people kind of will use that to blame black kids or black girls. Whatever they're doing is a reflection of some kind of bad morals, or they shouldn't be doing that. But they deserve private spaces, these blurred public and private spaces, just like you do. We all need a space online and offline that we can be ourselves freely and not be impinged upon by... I just can't imagine what it's like to be a young girl and have all of those comments. Now say you don't read them, but other people read them if they watched your video. So now you're going to school and there are people talking about you the way they saw other people talk about you
1: right but then there's also i mean we're we're talking on a certain level about the attention economy yes and how this whole landscape has been configured to induce clicks and yeah we're going to click on sexy things druggy things i mean we've seen the clickbait slideshows we know how they craft those things so yeah and 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 that feeds into the being in a, a male gaze culture of oppression and misogyny on the other hand, we see many young people uh, uh, internalize that value system as well. You know, I did this documentary a few years ago called so Generation loved, Like. Oh, I loved thanks.
0: The documentary. <laughs> and I,
1: now I feel a little bit bad for the way I treated this poor girl. Um, you know, Daniela at the end of it. So there was this girl who started out, she was singing the cup song when she's around 14 years old, and then she noticed, she and her mom noticed, she gets more clicks when she wears tight dresses or when she shows her whole body, and it turned into a, you know, Danny's Do's and Don'ts, a show that she does alone in her bedroom in a little T-shirt, and she played right into, and she knows, and I asked her mother right on camera, I said, don't you, what? do You know what, who's watching this yeah. and what they're doing? And she goes, well, you know, I never really thought about it. Maybe I was a little naive. It's like, well, duh. I mean, but you're saying not like what I'm saying, which is just, you're crazy. Stop posting pictures of yourself online. You're saying that there's also some element, an important element of self-expression that's going on here that needs to be preserved and protected.
0: Yeah, we have moved online. We are both online beings and offline beings. What I'm concerned about is how much money do I need or will I need if I get in trouble with something I uploaded about myself onto the web so that I can protect my future identity? How much capital will I need to protect myself? How much influence would I need? They're asking students nowadays to give their Facebook password when they go on job interviews. They want to look to see what you've been doing. So what if you come from a marginalized community where, you know, Dana Boyd wrote about this in her book and in her earlier research on the move from uh, the white flight from MySpace. I mean, what if you grew up in a neighborhood where gang signs and and looking like somebody who has short shorts on and all that stuff is what's normal? And somebody who's trying to get, in, you, you know, looking at an application for you in a place that doesn't fit that image, doesn't want that image associated with their business, says, well, she has too much of that kind of content on her site. So we are thank you very much for coming to apply, but we hired someone else. I think it's really troublesome because we can't see behind the black box and the black mirror to see what's actually going on with our content, with our personal content, how it's being used and how it may be used against us in the future. We can't anticipate it. We're going to have to go through it to find out in most cases.
1: At the same time, I mean, we don't want to throw ourselves in that kind of anti-tech camp yeah. either. No. Because you're not saying no. You're you're arguing for something. The thing that's unique, that's kind of new ground here, is saying no, no, no. But kids need a space to be able to do what they do safely and in the context of childhood. But I don't want my kid twerking
0: on Vine. <laughs> I mean, no one should, you know. Well, I mean, the the problem is that twerking, um, you know, a lot of people out there will not know that this kind of dancing is very common in black communities and Latin communities. It's called by various names. It's called perreo in the Dominican community, Uh, dembo and twerking and... Bounce from New Orleans uh, and the Dirty South, as it's called, uh, Dirty the South rap scene. It's referred to primarily as bounce, sometimes as pee popping. So, I mean, there's all of these dances. I mean, don't you remember Elvis Presley?
1: Yeah, (laughs) Uh, don't you
0: remember? To (laughs) the uninitiated, when I see
1: someone twerking,
0: I think that they're
1: showing me the way that they would engage me in intercourse.
0: Yeah, it may look like that. It does. But just imagine that shaking your hips back when... Was just shaking your hips. You know, they... did <laughs> <laughs> Not according to back then, right? They tried to, you know, ban Elvis Presley right. from shaking his hips and other people who were associated with that kind of dance. And so, um, you know, what is adolescence? So there's... I've been trying to approach it from a couple of ways. One is from a cognitive developmental process. So this two-thirds of your gray matter is developed during that time, and then it's pruned as you get through the end of adolescence. And one of the primary aspects of that is emotion, is learning how to emote and form social connections. And that's what adolescence is all about. It's also that time where people come sexually active, but they're not necessarily having sex. A lot of kids play the game, the social dance of romance and and performance stuff, and then there's a lot of kids who are who are actually having sex, but dancing is not sex. It's a dance, and there's lots of dances from samba to uh, tango to all kinds of dances have this kind of hip gesture, even hula, making it erotic or making it seem like it's directly related to sexuality. Um, that's what adults' gaze puts right. on Right.
1: It's one of the first scenes in Lolita, I think. Yeah. She's doing a hula hoop, <laughs> and he comes in. The old guy's like, ah. Oh. Right. And it's, I mean, to us as an audience, it looks sick, because he's this old yeah. man.
0: It's complicated. I, I don't think that young people understand how, how the... Sexual gaze may be shaping the way people perceive them. You know, at the same time, we don't want it to
1: repress the human element in these kids. You can't say, oh, well, now you're in a dangerous world, so stop expressing yourself in these ways. Guys are going to look at it like this, so you can't do that anymore. I mean, there's certain things you don't want a kid to do because it's dangerous, but but you don't want to start, you know, limiting self-expression just because yeah, of the scene.
0: Especially because the modes of expression that, are being, that would be censored in that context are all about girls. It's not about boys. It's not about teaching boys to think differently about how they react to images that aren't real. We're not training boys to say, well, you shouldn't leave those kinds of comments below. Everything is always managed around the female body. We don't have a solution to the misogyny yet. We don't want to take responsibility for how patriarchy has shaped the way that we interact online and offline. I mean, we've, we're seeing it in the election, the way that people treat men versus women. What's tolerated? Right. Well, if these are the default settings of our society and we
1: treat them as just preconditions of, of nature or of being here, then they get amplified by digital technology And they get
0: way, way more extreme pretty fast. Yeah, we love arguing about it. And that's just feeding the attention (laughs) economy. It's ironic. It's almost like you can't get out. It's like a a maze that you can't get out of. But meanwhile, people are profiting from all of that. And uh, we actually separate ourselves from owning that in many ways because we're not aware of all of the repercussions of what it means to give all of our attention to those kinds of things all the time.
1: Well, you know, awareness seems like the first step. Mm-hmm. You know, waking up. And uh, the thing, the thing I like about the way you you think and talk about it is that you're you're measured. You're patient. You're open. Do you know what I mean? You're not react as I would probably just wait
0: a minute. What's happening here? We're gonna go fight. Stop this. <laughs> you know, you're like okay. There's this, there's that. I there's, started you know. out studying this. I mean, why I started studying Twerking videos is not necessarily because I like twerking. Um, I do like it, but in the beginning, I thought it was absolutely how how could? Young black girls do this. This is going to damage your reputation. We already have a stigma against us because of race and sex. Why would you want to do this? Why would your mother let you do this? Why would you enter that competition and put it online? You know, all of that. There was all of the fear and the, you know, the panic about it. The more I studied it, the more I recognized myself in it as the adolescent girl who was in the bedroom trying to be Diana Ross Mm wanting to be a supreme, wanting to dance that way, or wanting to dress that way, wanting to dressing myself up that way. So I saw what was childhood play. On the other hand, I began to see what I think is really the problem I'm after now, which is the social reproduction of bias. Um, The bias that comes from being able to think only with the kind of stereotypes that come up when you don't know people. So when I first meet anybody, all I have is stereotypes. All I have is generalizations. I don't know you. So all I know is the things I can see, and they're deceptive. Mm. And this is where we live with first impressions, and maybe that's why they say you know, you can never, never get a second chance at a first impression. It's probably not as true in real life as it is online. You don't get to intercede in what people see about you. In fact, they'll hold that perception of you for quite a while until they meet you, until they have a chance to talk about you. So they can keep and hold that impression of you and then double up on it with other people. And for me, the problem is that the people we see, we're in real time, in real space. We're still living in highly segregated spaces. Residential communities in the United States are still highly segregated. Urban cities are still highly segregated as far as residences. So if you're spending your time in your home seeing people around the world and the only things you've ever learned about them has been from media that doesn't really give you a full spectrum of their humanity, all we have is our stereotypes. So for me, I'm measured about it because mostly we are crazy about it. We get anxious, argue, talk over people interrupt, interject. We don't have time to sit back and go, there's a whole thing going on here. This is not new. Uh, The problem is that it's intensified by social media. If we thought that people um, had access to understanding what was going on in the the hood in the 70s from television... (laughs) What is it like watching car wash or something? <laughs> yeah. What is it like now that all of those kinds of things are broadcast in micro minutia every second from everywhere around the planet and you can see it and assume what you want about those people and build on the past biases we've always had that those people don't belong here that we're not like them. I would never do that. And it's a very haughty and naive place to um, make judgments from when all of us have done things we wouldn't want <laughs> others to see and that are not reflective of who we are. I, I like what you're saying about about first impressions because at
1: first you would think, well, you only get one chance to make a first impression, but more importantly, you only get one chance to, to absorb, to create a first impression
0: of someone else. Yeah, it's a two-way street. It's more than what I do. It's how you perceive me as well. Now, I have to manage that if I wear a certain kind of clothes, you are likely to have a certain kind of impression about me. In certain quarters, I know that this is called kind of respectability politics and that it's not okay, particularly for black people, because we've always had to manage who we were in the public sphere. But that, I don't know if we can change the reality by saying, don't do it. Like, um, you have to accept me the way I am. I I think that that's uh, naive. I think that there are things that you must do to represent yourself well, and you have to pay attention to that other people perceive you in a negative way. I can't change your mind, but I got to be responsible for how you perceive me. I can only try to represent myself in a way that meets. It's somewhere in the middle. It's like we're meeting. This is why sometimes I think social media or this interface, the computer human interface – has the potential to speak something to us. It's just not being used that way. Well, it's because that's you know, <laughs> and
1: back to back to where we started, you know, which is kind of a good place to end up is, uh, it's not there because that's not the way that the companies who are currently running things are going to make their short term profit. You know, ironically, it would create such long term value, and I would argue economic, sustainable economic value I and agree. jobs and connections. Yeah, but um. If this, I still have that same optimistic original 1980s psychedelic love for <laughs> digital technology, um, which is why it pains me to see. Uh, it's not been going well. It's not been going well. And the, the human cost, the emotional cost, the cost on the, the most vulnerable members of our society seems, uh, I guess that's what I've learned today, it seems to be higher
0: yeah, than for the rest not, of us. Yeah, nobody is safe from it. I don't think anybody, even the richest person in America, is not safe from what social media's consequences can bring. But they have resources. Right. They have resources and means to repair the damage. The rest of us have to manage our identities. Right. And I guess the easiest path to that is awareness some education yeah you'll make a lot of mistakes dana boyd always said you know yeah. kids all of us i think all of us usually make the mistake before we repair it the question is you know to be very cautious about how much you put yourself out there and if, if you just remind yourself that your are is watching it helps yeah, and then I guess just be your a boss
1: and be as human as you can in your real time. Yeah, yeah,
0: that's definitely that's a interesting note to end on. You know, what does it mean to be human and all of that?
1: <laughs> well, we're figuring it out. Yes, we are.
0: Thanks for joining Team Human,
1: where we've been talking with our newest teammate, Professor Kira Gaunt. We'll be back in the basement media squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. We're being broadcast on a growing number of public college and community radio stations as well. If you're interested in syndicating the program, contact us through the website. We also want to thank some teammates who've chosen to support us with donations. Alicia Pilar Mogoyan. Bruce Dixon, Martin Riofrio, and Michael Castaneda. Thanks for being on Team Human. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. Team Human, our last best hope for Peeps.